Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. How are you today? I hope you're doing fine wherever you are in the world. Here's a new episode of my podcast for learners of English. This podcast is here to help you improve your English in various ways. I want to help you to get more English into your life, basically. One of the things I like to do in my episodes is to tell you stories. And in this episode, it's time for another one. And this time, I would simply like to read you a Sherlock Holmes story. I love Sherlock Holmes mysteries, and it is my distinct pleasure to share one with you today. Normally, when I read stories to you on this podcast, I explain the vocabulary in some detail. But this story is quite long. It's over 9,000 words and will probably take about an hour to read in total. So there isn't really time for me to explain every single difficult word. I will summarise the story at intervals to make sure you're following it okay. But the main aim here is just to let you enjoy a wonderful Sherlock Holmes detective story. And so I'm just going to read it to you. Just in case you don't know, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional private detective created by British author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Sherlock Holmes stories were written and published at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So they are about 100 years old, maybe a bit more. Sherlock Holmes is famous for his exceptional powers of observation and deduction. Deduction basically means working things out from evidence. One of the things that Sherlock Holmes can do is he will look at something, a situation or a person, and quickly make observations. And then from those observations, he will deduce things that are not obvious or clear to everyone else. For example, he might take a look at me and work out my job, uh, where I live and what I've been doing over the past few weeks, just from my appearance. It's kind of a superpower that he has. Although it's not magic or anything, it's purely scientific deduction. He's an interesting character for, for many reasons, but one of the most interesting things is his method, his method of um, observation and deduction, working things out from evidence. And he uses this to solve complex cases, criminal cases, that baffle the police and other investigators. Holmes's sidekick, his companion, is Dr. John Watson, who documents Holmes's adventures and provides insight into his enigmatic personality. Almost all the Sherlock Holmes stories are written by Watson or written from the point of view of Watson, and he is the narrator of the stories, including this one. So, as you listen to this, just try to follow along and enjoy the story. Okay, that's your task. It might be a bit complex and it's difficult to solve the mystery, but you can try if you like. But the main thing is just to follow along and enjoy listening. Now, old-fashioned language. Bear in mind that this was written over a hundred years ago. And so the language is quite old-fashioned, quite formal and complex. This will make it difficult to understand this story. 
But if you're willing to tolerate some confusion, you should ultimately find it to be an enjoyable experience. You'll find the entire script of this story on the page for this episode on my website. You can read along with me while you listen or just check it later. And of course, if there are words and phrases that come up and you're kind of thinking, huh, what's that? You can go to the script, you can find those words and phrases and then, you know, Google them or use an online dictionary to find out more. So you can, you know, do your own research. Um, But expect to be confused, okay? That is normal. It's normal with Sherlock Holmes stories to be a bit confused at the beginning as the mysterious events of the case are described. Okay. Normally, the way it works is that the story begins with um, with Sherlock Holmes and Watson meeting a client. The client tells his story or her story and explains the situation. Holmes then investigates in a slightly sort of mysterious way. He does things that we don't really understand or that Watson doesn't really understand. And then uh, Holmes solves the mystery and explains everything to you. So it's normal in the beginning to be a bit confused, but that's totally fine. Personally, when I read Sherlock Holmes stories, I often feel a bit confused and I don't quite know what's going on. But I enjoy the descriptive language and the whole world of Holmes and Watson so much that I feel like it doesn't really matter if I'm a bit confused sometimes. And anyway, Holmes always explains everything at the end, so it's okay. Also, I will clarify and summarise at regular intervals during the story, which should help you too. This story is called The Red-Headed League, and it's about a strange organisation which only red-headed men can join. Someone who is red-headed is someone with red hair or ginger hair, okay? So the story involves a man with ginger hair who is invited to become a member of the Red-Headed League, this mysterious organisation, in order to do a specific job for them. Things then turn strange, as you will hear, and the man doesn't understand what has happened to him, so he turns to Sherlock Holmes for help. Holmes investigates with the help of Watson and uncovers a sinister plan. So, without any further ado, let's begin the story and I hope you enjoy it. This is The Red-Headed League by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's available in the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes uh, book, okay, along with lots of other really good stories. Okay, so here we go. I had called upon my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, one day in the autumn of last year and found him in deep conversation with a very stout, florid-faced elderly gentleman with fiery red hair. With an apology for my intrusion, I was about to withdraw when Holmes pulled me abruptly into the room and closed the door behind me. "'You could not possibly have come at a better time, my dear Watson,' he said cordially." I was afraid that you were engaged. So I am very much so. Then I can wait in the next room. Not at all. This gentleman, Mr. Wilson, has been my partner and helper in many of my most successful cases, and I have no doubt that he will be of the utmost use to me in yours also. The stout gentleman half rose from his chair and gave a bob of greeting with a little questioning glance from his small, fat-encircled eyes. "'Try the settee,' said Holmes, relapsing into his armchair and putting his fingertips together, as was his custom 
when in judicial moods. I know, my dear Watson, that you share my love of all that is bizarre and outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life. You have shown your relish for it by the enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle, and if you will excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish so many of my own little adventures. Your cases have indeed been of the greatest interest to me, I observed. You will remember that I remarked the other day, just before we went into the very simple problem presented by Miss Mary Sutherland, that for strange effects and extraordinary combinations, we must go to life itself, which is always far more daring than any effort of the imagination. A proposition which I took the liberty of doubting. You did, Doctor, but nonetheless you must come round to my view, for otherwise I shall keep piling fact upon fact on you until your reason breaks down under them and acknowledges me to be right. Now, Mr Jabez Wilson here has been good enough to call upon me this morning and to begin a narrative which promises to be one of the most singular which I have listened to for some time. Perhaps, Mr. Wilson, you would have the great kindness to recommence your narrative. I ask you not merely because my friend Dr. Watson has not heard the opening part, but also because the peculiar nature of the story makes me anxious to have every possible detail from your lips. As a rule, when I have heard some slight indication of the course of events, I am able to guide myself by the thousands of other similar cases which occur to my memory. In the present instance, I am forced to admit that the facts are, to the best of my belief, unique. Okay, let's have a little pause there. I'm going to pause, as I said, briefly, sometimes just to clarify. So what's going on? So Watson visits Sherlock Holmes and he discovers that he is with a client. So Watson sort of says, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to disturb you. But Holmes pulls Watson into the room and says, no, 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 I'm going to need your help. And you're going to find this one really interesting. And then uh, Watson talks about, uh, then Holmes talks about how um, basically the truth is stranger than fiction. And he mentions that uh, recently while working on another case, uh, Holmes said this to Watson, you know, he said basically that the, the truth is always stranger than fiction. And Watson disagreed, uh, but Holmes believes that this case might help to uh, change Watson's mind. Um, and Holmes also mentions the fact that when he's working on a case, he finds out information about it and then he uses information that he's gained from the thousands of other cases he's worked on to help him solve the current mystery. But he said that this particular mystery he's working on today is unique. And so he's never really encountered a situation like this before. Okay. All right. So the, the, the client is this man called Mr. Jabez Wilson, who is portly. He's kind of a bit fat, florid faced. He's got a red face and he's got fiery red hair. Okay. So let's continue. The portly client puffed out his chest with an appearance of some little pride and pulled a dirty and wrinkled newspaper from the inside pocket of his greatcoat. As he glanced down the advertisement column with his head thrust forward and the paper flattened out upon his knee, I took a good look at the man 
and endeavoured, after the fashion of my companion, to read the indications which might be presented by his dress or appearance. I did not gain very much, however, by my inspection. Our visitor bore every mark of being an average, commonplace British tradesman, obese, pompous and slow. He wore rather baggy grey shepherd's check trousers, a not over-clean black frock coat unbuttoned in the front, and a drab waistcoat with a heavy brassy Albert chain and a square pierced bit of metal dangling down as an ornament. A frayed top hat and a faded brown overcoat with a wrinkled velvet collar lay upon a chair beside him. Altogether, look as I would, there was nothing remarkable about the man save his blazing red head and the expression of extreme chagrin and discontent upon his features. Hmm. Sherlock Holmes's quick eye took in my occupation and he shook his head with a smile as he noticed my questioning glances. Beyond the obvious facts that he has at some time done manual labour, that he takes snuff, that he is a Freemason, that he's been in China, and that he's done a considerable amount of writing lately, I can deduce nothing else, said Holmes. Mr. Jabez Wilson started up in his chair, with his forefinger upon the paper, but his eyes on my companion. "'How in the name of good fortune did you know all that, Mr. Holmes?' he asked. "'How did you know, for example, that I did manual labour? "'It's as true as gospel, for I began as a ship's carpenter. "'Your hands, my dear sir, your right hand is quite a size larger than your left. "'You have worked with it, and the muscles are more developed. Hmm. "'Well, then, well, the snuff, then.' And the Freemasonry? I won't insult your intelligence by telling you how I read that, especially as, rather against the strict rules of your order, you use an arc and compass breastpin. Ah, of course, yeah, I forgot that. But the writing? What else can be indicated by that right cuff, so very shiny for five inches? and the left one with the smooth patch near the elbow where you rest it upon the desk. Well, but China? The fish that you have tattooed immediately above your right wrist could only have been done in China. I have made a small study of tattoo marks, and have even contributed to the literature of the subject. That trick of staining the fish's scales of a delicate pink is quite peculiar to China. When, in addition, I see a Chinese coin hanging from your watch chain, the matter becomes even more simple. Mr. Jabez Wilson laughed heavily. Well, I never said he. I thought at first that you'd done something clever, but I see there was nothing in it after all. I begin to think, Watson, said Holmes, that I make a mistake in explaining. Omne ignotum pro magnifico, you know, and my poor little reputation, such as it is, will suffer shipwreck if I am so candid. Right. So what's going on here? Let me explain what's happened so far. So we, we get um, Jabez Wilson. He's got a newspaper article which he pulls out of his pocket. And at that point, Watson 
starts to try to do some of Sherlock Holmes's uh, deductive reasoning. So Watson attempts to use Sherlock Holmes's method to try to draw conclusions about the man, but he can't. He, as far as he can tell, this guy is just a very average British tradesman. Um, and what uh, Holmes notices that Watson is trying to work things out, and he finds it amusing. And then Holmes explains the things that he's observed. And he, he's observed that, um, what is it? Um, he's done some manual labour. He takes snuff. Snuff is basically a powdered form of tobacco that people used to take. I don't think people take it anymore. But snuff is a yeah, powdered tobacco that people sort of snort. They sniff it up their nose. I guess it was fairly common in those days. Um so he he done manual labor like physical work he takes snuff he's a freemason a, a freemasons are it's a it's a kind of secret society um still going today and freemasons are it's a bit weird really but they meet in they have meetings and I'm not really sure what they do and they have a secret handshake and also they're not supposed to reveal that they're members of the the freemasons so the guy's a Freemason. He's been in China and that he's done a considerable amount of writing lately. This is what Holmes has worked out. And Wilson is surprised because all of the things are correct. And he's like, how on earth did you do that? Holmes explains um, that he's, he's worked out that uh, Wilson did manual labor because his right hand is much larger and the muscles are more developed in his right hand. Um, what else? Uh, the Freemasonry. Basically, Holmes identifies that. He says, I'm not going to give away all your secrets, but I noticed that you're wearing a certain uh, breast pin, a kind of badge on his lapel of his jacket, I suppose. An arc and compass, which is, I suppose, a symbol of the Freemasons. And um, I don't know about the snuff, except maybe he's got some snuff on his nose or something. Um, and what about the writing? So how did he know that Wilson has been writing a lot? Well, Holmes says, Holmes notices that the right cuff, so the sort of um, the end of the, the sleeve on his shirt or his jacket uh, is shiny, which means that as the guy's been writing, the cuff has been rubbing against the table. And so it's made the, 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 the cuff all shiny. And there's a uh, a smooth patch on his elbow, which is where he's been resting the elbow on the desk while writing. And then China, he works out that Wilson has, has spent time in China because he's got a tattoo of a fish on his right wrist and it's been um, a, a certain pink uh, stain, a certain pin, pink ink has been used and um, Holmes knows that that kind of pink ink is only available in China. Also, Wilson is has got a, a a Chinese coin hanging from his watch chain. Obviously, in those days, people didn't have um, wristwatches. They had pocket watches, which would go in a pocket and then would be attached to the waistcoat or jacket by a chain. And the chain would hang down. And in this case, uh, Wilson has a Chinese coin attached to his chain. So all these things allow... Um, Holmes to understand what's going on. And when when um, Holmes explains that he just, you know, observed these things, 
Wilson seems to be unimpressed. He's like, oh, well, it's, uh, uh, oh, oh, it's quite simple then, isn't it, really? And I think omne ignotum pro magnifico, this is Latin. What does that mean, though? Everything, everything is unknown is taken as grand. Everything, is, everything which is unknown is taken as grand and magnificent. So this is an interesting point because basically it's saying that when we don't know how something is done, we're incredibly impressed. Like when we see a magic trick, it's, an, it's stunning and amazing. But when we learn how it's done, we're less impressed. Okay, and uh, so Holmes says, um, uh, it, it, he says, if I'm so candid, if I explain my methods so openly, then my reputation will suffer shipwreck. My reputation will be, will be wrecked if I explain my methods like this every time. Um, let's continue the story. <clears throat> Can you not find the advertisement, Mr. Wilson? Yes, I, I, I've got it now, he answered, with his thick red finger planted halfway down the column. Here it is. This is, this is what began it all. You just read it for yourself, sir. I took the paper from him and read as follows. To the Red-Headed League, on the account of the bequest of the late Ezekiel Hopkins of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, USA, there is now another vacancy open, which entitles a member of the League to a salary of £4 a week for purely nominal services. All red-headed men who are, who are sound in body and mind and above the age of 21 years are eligible. Apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 Pope's Court, Fleet Street. What on earth did this... What on earth does this mean? I ejaculated. <laughs> um, wait a minute. What on earth did this mean? I ejaculated after I had twice read over the extraordinary announcement. Uh, um, all right, hold on a minute. So these days, this is an example of like, you know, how language changes. These days, uh, the verb ejaculate only has really one use, one meaning. And it's sexual. Well, I'm going to have to explain that now, aren't I? So, uh, to ejaculate... <laughs> um, okay. So, when a, when, a, when a man reaches sexual climax, right, during the act of sexual intercourse or, or other sexual uh, uh, activities, <laughs> when the man reaches climax and... Uh, uh, how can I put this? <laughs> right, you know what happens, right, when a man reaches sexual climax. You know what happens. You know, like, something comes out, right? This, the verb for that is to ejaculate. So, actually, it means just to come out with something. And these days, it's only the sexual thing. But back in the time when Conan Doyle wrote this, ejaculate could also mean to quickly say something. <laughs> but it certainly gives a different um, meaning to this part of the story. What on earth does this mean? I ejaculated. <laughs> and Watson and Holmes was like, Watson, <laughs> if you are to ejaculate, at least have the decency to do it in the privacy of your own quarters. Anyway, what on earth does this mean? I ejaculated. I said, after I had twice read over the extraordinary announcement. Okay. 
Holmes chuckled and wriggled in his chair, as was his habit when in high spirits. It is a little off the beaten track, isn't it? said he. And now, Mr. Wilson, off you go at scratch, and tell us all about yourself, your household, and the effect which this advertisement had upon your fortunes. You will first make note, Doctor, of the paper and the date. It is uh, the Morning Chronicle of April the 27th, 1890, just two months ago. Very good. Now, Mr. Wilson... Okay, so what's going on here is that Wilson has, uh, on the newspaper, there's an advertisement. The advertisement is um, a job uh, offer uh, for a job at the Red-Headed League, okay, um, at the bequest of the late Ezekiel Hopkins. So Ezekiel Hopkins is this American guy, the late Ezekiel Hopkins. So he's dead now. But it seemed that Ezekiel Hopkins made certain bequests, like requests that he wanted to be carried out after his death. So it's a bit mysterious. What is? Who is this Ezekiel Hopkins and what are these requests? The request is that um, basically a job is available. Um, it's £4 a week, which at the time would have been a good wage, for purely nominal services. Nominal services is just sort of like... Um, not very taxing work, just basic sort of administrative work, basically. But the job is open only for red-headed men who are sound in body and mind, meaning physically and mentally healthy, above the age of 21. Only those people can apply for the job. And in order to apply, you have to go to the Red-Headed League on Monday at 11 o'clock, uh, 7 Pope's Court in Fleet Street in London. And after... Uh, Watson had ejaculated. <laughs> um, he read it, uh, read it again and again. Um, and then Holmes asks uh, Jabez Wilson to explain uh, what's going on. So this is now Jabez Wilson explaining. Okay. Well, it is just as I've been telling you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said Jabez Wilson, mopping his forehead. I have a small pawnbroker's business at Coburg Square near the city. It's not a very large affair. And of late years, it's not done more than just give me a living. I used to be able to keep two assistants, but now I only keep one. And I would have a job to pay him, but he's willing to come for half wages so as to learn the business. What is the name of this obliging youth? asked Sherlock Holmes. His name is Vincent Spaulding, and he's not such a youth either. It's hard to say his age. I should not wish a smarter assistant, Mr. Holmes and I know very well that he could better himself and earn twice what I am able to give him. But after all, if he is satisfied, why should I put ideas in his head? Why, indeed, you seem most fortunate in having an employee who comes under the full market price. It is not a common experience among employers in this age. I don't know that your assistant is not as remarkable as your advertisement. Oh, he has his faults too said Mr. Wilson. Never was such a fellow for photography, snapping away with a camera when he ought to be improving his mind, and then diving down into the cellar like a rabbit into its hole to develop his pictures. That is his main fault, but on the whole, he's a good worker. There's no vice in him. He is still with you, I presume? Yes, sir. He and a girl of fourteen who does a bit of simple cooking and keeps the place clean. That's all I have in the house. 
for I am a widower and never had any family. We live very quietly, sir, the three of us, and we keep a roof over our heads and pay our debts if we do nothing more. Okay, so uh, to summarise here, uh, Wilson explains uh, that he has a pawnbroker's business. So uh, a pawn, yeah, of course, a pawn shop, P-A-W-N. Um, so uh, a pawnbroker, you know, it's kind of a, a simple kind of business. Uh, if you need cash, uh, you might go and let's say I need some cash. I might take my guitar to the pawn shop and uh, hand it over and the pawnbroker would kind of give me money in return for it. And if I want my guitar back, I'd need to come back with some more money and exchange it back for the guitar. So it's a way of, you know, getting cash. It's kind of a way of lending money to people. Kind of a simple business. Okay, that's what he does. And he employs uh, an assistant called um, Vincent Spaulding. And the interesting things about this assistant is that he, um, we don't know his age. Um, he, he, um, Wilson pays him half the normal market price. So the wage that he pays Wilson is 50% of what he could be earning elsewhere. But Spalding continues to work for him. Mm -hmm. um, he seems to be a fairly good worker, except the fact that he uh, is very, very keen on photography. He's always taking pictures of things. And regularly, he goes down into the cellar, into the basement, to, um, to develop his pictures. So he's constantly taking photos and going down into the basement a lot. And that seems to be the main problem, but otherwise he's fine. And also there's a 14-year-old girl who kind of does some cooking and cleaning. 14-year-old girl working for them. <laughs> That's what it used to be like in those days. Okay, let's continue. The first thing that put us out was that advertisement. Spalding, he came down into the office just this day, eight weeks ago, with this very paper in his hand. And he says, I wish to the Lord, Mr. Wilson, that I was a red-headed man. Why's that? I asked him. Why, says he, here's another vacancy on the League of the Red-Headed Men. It's worth quite a little fortune to any man who gets it. And I understand that there are more vacancies than there are men, so that the trustees are at their wits' end what to do with the money. If my hair would only change colour, here's a nice little crib all ready for me to step into. Why, what is it then? I asked. You see, Mr Holmes, I'm a very stay-at-home man, and as my business came to me instead of my having to go to it, I was often weeks on end without putting my foot over the doormat. In that way, I didn't know much of what was going on outside, and I was always glad of a bit of news. Have you heard of the League of the Red-Headed Men? He asked with his eyes open. Never. Why wonder that? For you are eligible yourself for one of the vacancies. And, and what are they worth? I asked. Oh, merely a couple of hundred a year, but the work is slight and it need not interfere very much with one's other occupations. Well, you can easily think that that made me prick up my ears, for the business has not been over good for some years, and an extra couple of hundred would have been very handy. Tell me about it, I said to Spaulding. Well, said he, showing me the advertisement, you can see for yourself that the League has a vacancy, and there is the address where you should apply for the particulars. 
far as I can make out, the league was founded by an American millionaire, Ezekiel Hopkins, who was very peculiar in his ways. He was himself red-headed, and he had great sympathy for all red-headed men. So when he died, it was found that he had left his enormous fortune in the hands of trustees, with instructions to apply the interest to the providing of easy births to men whose hair is of that colour. From all I hear, it is splendid pay and very little to do. But, said I, there would be millions of red-headed men who would apply. Not so many as you might think, he answered. You see, it's really confined to Londoners and to grown men. This American had started from London when he was young and he wanted to do the old town a good turn. Then again, I have heard it is no use your applying if your head is light red or dark red or anything but the real bright, blazing, fiery red. Now, if you cared to apply, Mr Wilson, you would just walk in. But perhaps it would hardly be worth your while to put yourself out of the way for the sake of a few hundred pounds. Now, it is a fact, gentlemen, as you may see for yourselves, that my hair is of a very full and rich tint, so that it seemed to me that if there was to be any competition in the matter, I stood as good a chance as any man that I had ever met. Vincent Spaulding seemed to know so much about it that I thought he might prove useful, so I just ordered him to put up the shutters for the day and to come right away with me. He was very willing to have a holiday, so we shut the business up and started off for the address that was given in the advertisement. OK, time to stop and summarise again. Here we go. So it's Vincent Spaulding, the assistant who likes photography, uh, who showed Wilson the advertisement and explained everything. He seemed to know so much about it. And he basically says, look, there's another vacancy of the, of the League of the Red-Headed Men. He kind of explained what the league is. It's um, set up by uh, this American man with red hair, a millionaire who loves London. And so he decided that uh, when he died, he gave his money, all his millions to trustees. These are people who are given the responsibility to look after some money and uh, with instructions to basically help any red-headed men in London by giving them things like employment or giving them places to live. Okay? A bit weird, isn't it? And uh, Vincent Spaulding suggests that um, Jabez Wilson might be able to get the job. And Wilson thinks, actually, Wilson's not the sort of person who likes to go out very much, but this work seems to be pretty straightforward, not very challenging, and might earn him quite a lot of money. And his business isn't doing very well. So this could be a really, you know, a really good idea. So he asks Spaulding to close up the shop, put the shutters down and accompany him to the address in order to apply for the for the job, basically. OK, so let's continue. I never hope to see such a site as that again. So this is when they've gone to uh, the offices of the Red Headed League in Fleet Street. OK, they've gone there. Wilson is now explaining what he saw. I never hope to see such a sight as that again, Mr. Holmes. From north, south, east and west, every man who had a shade of red in his hair had tramped into the city to answer the advertisement. Fleet Street was choked with red-headed folk and Pope's Court looked like a Costa's orange barrow. 
I should not have thought that there were so many in the whole country as were brought together by that single advertisement. Every shade of colour they were. Straw, lemon, orange, brick, Irish setter, liver, clay. But as Spalding said, there were not many who had the real vivid flame-coloured tint. When I saw how many were waiting, I would have given it up in despair. But Spalding would not hear of it. How he did it, I could not imagine, but he pushed and pulled and butted until he got me through the crowd and right up to the steps which led to the office. There was a double stream upon the stair, some going up in hope and some coming back dejected, but we wedged in as well as we could and soon found ourselves in the office. "'Your experience has been a most entertaining one,' remarked Holmes." as his client paused and refreshed his memory with a huge pinch of snuff. <laughs> Pray continue your very interesting statement. There was nothing in the office but a couple of wooden chairs and a deal table, behind which sat a small man with a head that was even redder than mine. He said a few words to each candidate as he came up, and then he always managed to find some fault in them which would disqualify them. Getting a vacancy did not seem to be such a very easy matter after all. However, when our turn came, the little man was very much more favourable to me than to any of the others, and he closed the door as we entered, so that he might have a private word with us. "'This is Mr Jabez Wilson,' said my assistant, "'and he's willing to fill a vacancy in the league.' "'And he is admirably suited for it,' The other answered, he has every requirement. I cannot recall when I have seen anything so fine. He took a step backward, cocked his head on one side, and gazed at my hair until I felt quite bashful. Then suddenly he plunged forward, wrung my hand, shook my hand, and congratulated me warmly on my success. Congratulations! It would be injustice to hesitate, said he. You will, however, I am sure, excuse me for taking an obvious precaution. With that, he seized my hair in both hands and tugged until I yelled with pain. Ow! There is water in your eyes, said he as he released me. I perceive that all is as it should be. But we have to be careful, for we have twice been deceived by wigs and once by paint. I could tell you tales of cobbler's wax which would disgust you with human nature. He stepped over to the window and shouted through it at the top of his voice that the vacancy was filled. The vacancy has been filled! A groan of disappointment came up from below. <sighs> and the folk all trooped away in different directions until there was not a red head to be seen except my own and that of the manager. OK, what on earth is going on? So they turn up at the street at Fleet Street at the office of the Red-Headed League and there are thousands or hundreds of red-headed men there to apply for the job and there's all the different shades of red-head, um, as was described. But not hardly any of them have got this, the, the bright flame-coloured hair that um, Jabez Wilson has. Spalding the assistant, manages to get them through the crowd, into the building, and eventually up the stairs where they see the manager, who is a small man who also has bright red hair. The manager is very 
interested to meet Jabez Wilson. He closes the door and um, almost instantly gives him the job. And at one point, he has to check that the hair is real. He grabs his hair and pulls it just to make sure the hair is not a wig or that it's not painted or something. And when he's satisfied that it's genuine, he basically, I think he offers uh, the man the job. He calls down to the street to tell them that the job, the vacancy has been filled. And so there you go. All right. Um, mm hmm. Let me continue. So now we're going to hear a little bit more about the, the, the man who is offering the job. Okay. My name, said he, is Mr. Duncan Ross, and I am myself one of the pensioners upon the fund left by our noble benefactor. Are you a married man, Mr. Wilson? Have you a family? I answered that I had not. His face fell immediately. Ah, oh, dear me. He said gravely, that is very serious indeed. I am sorry to hear you say that. The fund, the money, the fund was, of course, for the propagation and spread of the redheads as well as for their maintenance. It is exceedingly unfortunate that you should be a bachelor. My face lengthened at this, Mr. Holmes, for I thought that I was not to have the vacancy after all. But after thinking it over for a few minutes... He said that it would be all right. In the case of another, said he, the objection might be fatal, but we must stretch a point in favour of a man with such a head of hair as yours. When shall you be able to enter upon your new duties? Well, it is a little awkward, for I have a business already, said I. Oh, never mind about that, Mr Wilson, said Vincent Spaulding. I should be able to look after that for you. Uh, what would be the hours, I asked. Ten to two. Now, a pawnbroker's business is mostly done of an evening, Mr Holmes, especially Thursday and Friday evening, which is just before payday. So it would suit me very well to earn a little in the mornings. Besides, I knew that my assistant was a good man and that he would see to anything that turned up. That would suit me very well, said I. And the pay is four pounds a week. And the work is purely nominal. What do you call purely nominal? Well, you have to be in the office or at least in the building the whole time. If you leave, you forfeit your whole position forever. The will is very clear upon that point. You don't comply with the conditions if you budge from the office during that time. It's only four hours a day and I should not think of leaving, said I. No excuse will avail said Mr. Duncan Ross, neither sickness nor business nor anything else. There you must stay or you lose your billet. And the work is to copy out the Encyclopaedia Britannica. There is the first volume of it in that press. You must find your own ink, pens and blotting paper, but we provide this table and chair. Will you be ready tomorrow? Certainly, I answered. Then goodbye, Mr. Jabez Wilson, and let me congratulate you once more on the important position which you have been fortunate enough to gain. He bowed me out of the room, and I went home with my assistant, hardly knowing what to say or do. I was so pleased at my own good fortune. Right, let's pause and explain. How are you doing, listeners? Are you managing to follow this? It's a good little story. So Duncan Ross explains... Um, that basically, you know, again, this money has been left um, by this American millionaire 
not only to maintain or to help redheaded people, but to um, to try to um, uh, to propagate the spread of redheaded men. So he's keen to know if Wilson has a family or if he could have children. Um, and Wilson doesn't. So Wilson confirms that he doesn't have any family. And Ross is a bit disappointed, but he says, you know what, because you've got such wonderfully red hair, and we're going to give you the job anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, Wilson decides he's going to take the job because the hours are good. It's just 10 in the morning till two in the afternoon. So basically the morning and uh, Wilson's work basically requires him to be there uh, usually in the evenings, especially on Thursdays and Fridays um, when customers tend to come. So it's sort of quite convenient. It works out quite well. Plus, he says, well, Spalding, my assistant, he can help out in the shop when I'm not there. So he takes the, the job. Um, four pounds a week. And in terms of the the conditions of the job, the conditions are the main thing that's emphasised is that he has to be in the room. He has to be in the building during those working hours, 10 till 2. And if he leaves it for any reason at all, then he forfeits the contract. Okay. And in terms of the work, strangely, he basically has to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica, which means he's got to take the encyclopedia, open it at page one, take a piece of fresh paper with a pen and ink and just write out, just copy what's in the encyclopedia. Very strange. So, But Wilson is very delighted. He's, he's delighted to have got the job. Let's continue the story. Well, I thought over the matter all day, and by evening I was in low spirits again, for I had quite persuaded myself that the whole affair must be some great hoax or fraud, though what its object might be I could not imagine. It seemed altogether past belief that anyone could make such a will, or that they would pay such a sum for doing anything so simple as copying out the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Vincent Spaulding did what he could to cheer me up, but by bedtime I had reasoned myself out of the whole thing. However, in the morning I determined to have a look at it anyhow, so I bought a penny bottle of ink with a quill pen and seven sheets of fool's cap paper. I started off for Pope's Court. Well, to my surprise and delight, everything was right as possible. The table was set out ready for me, and Mr. Duncan Ross was there to see that I got fairly to work. He started me off upon the letter A, and then he left me. But he would drop in from time to time to see that all was right with me. At two o'clock he bade me good day, complimented me upon the amount that I had written, and locked the door of the office after me. This went on day after day, Mr. Holmes, and on Saturday the manager came in and planked down four golden sovereigns for my week's work. It was the same the next week and the same the week after. Every morning I was there at ten and every afternoon I left at two. By degrees Mr Duncan Ross took to coming in only once of a morning and then after a time he did not come in at all. Still, of course, I never dared to leave the room for an instant for I was not sure when he might come and the billet was such a good one and suited me so well that I would not risk the loss of it. 
eight weeks passed away like this, and I had written about abbots and archery and armour and architecture and Attica, and hoped with diligence that I might get on to the bees before very long. It cost me something in fool's cap, paper, and I had pretty nearly filled a shelf with my writings. And then suddenly the whole business came to an end. To an end? Yes, sir, and no later than this morning. I went to my work as usual at ten o'clock, but the door was shut and locked with a little square of cardboard hammered onto the middle of the panel with a tack. Here it is, and you can read for yourself. He held up a piece of white cardboard about the size of a sheet of notepaper. It read in this fashion. The Red-Headed League is dissolved. October the 9th, 1890. Sherlock Holmes and I surveyed this curt announcement and the rueful face behind it until the comical side of the affair so completely overtopped every other consideration that we both burst out into a roar of laughter. "'I cannot see that there is anything very funny,' cried our client, flushing up to the roots of his flaming head. "'If you can do nothing better than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere.' "'No, no,' cried Holmes, shoving him back into the chair from which he had half risen. "'I really wouldn't miss your case for the world. It is most refreshingly unusual. But there is, if you will excuse my saying so, something just a little funny about it. Pray, what steps did you take when you found the card upon the door?' "'I was staggered, sir. I did not know what to do. Then I called at the offices, but none of them seemed to know anything about it. Finally, I went to the landlord, who is an accountant living on the ground floor, and I asked him if he could tell me what had become of the Red-Headed League. He said that he'd never heard of any such body. Then I asked him who Mr Duncan Ross was. He answered that the name was new to him. Well, said I, the gentleman at number four. What, the, the red-headed man? Yes. Oh, said he, his name was William Morris. He was a solicitor and was using my room as a temporary convenience until his new premises were ready. He moved out yesterday. Where could I find him? Oh, at his new offices. He did tell me the address. Yes, 17 King Edward Street, near St Paul's. I started off, Mr Holmes, but when I got to that address, it was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps, and no one in it had ever heard of either Mr William Morris or... Mr. Duncan Ross. And what did you do then? asked Holmes. I went home to Saxe-Coburg Square and I took the advice of my assistant. But he could not help me in any way. He could only say that if I waited, I should hear by post. But that was not quite good enough, Mr. Holmes. I did not wish to lose such a place without a struggle. So, as I had heard that you were good enough to give advice to poor folk who were in need of it, I came right away to you. "'And you did very wisely,' said Holmes. "'Your case is an exceedingly remarkable one, "'and I shall be happy to look into it. "'From what you have told me, "'I think that it is possible that graver issues hang from it "'than might at first sight appear.' "'Grave enough,' said Mr Jabez Wilson. "'Why, I've lost four pounds a week.' "'As far as you are personally concerned,' remarked Holmes. I do not see that you have any grievance against this extraordinary league. On the contrary, 
You are, as I understand, richer by some thirty pounds, to say nothing of the minute knowledge which you have gained on every subject which comes under the letter A. You have lost nothing by them. No, sir, but I want to find out about them, and who they are, and what their object was in playing this prank, if it was a prank, upon me. It was a pretty expensive joke for them. It cost them two and thirty pounds. We shall endeavour to clear up these points for you. Okay, let's stop and explain what's going on. So, Jabez Wilson went to work in the morning and, yeah, everything was as it was supposed to be. The table was there, the encyclopedia was there, so he started um, he started copying it out, starting with the letter A. And um, this guy, Vincent... What's his name? Ross? Um, no, Vincent Spaulding... And Duncan Ross. Duncan Ross kept coming in. He kept popping in to check up on him. And over the period of eight weeks, this kept happening. Duncan Ross would pop in to check that he was doing the copying. And less and less. He would come in less and less. So eventually, after a few weeks, he wasn't really coming in at all. But since... Um, since Jabez Wilson didn't know if he would turn up or not, he carried on doing the work and he did it very diligently. And every week, four gold sovereigns were given to him as payment. And then suddenly, after eight weeks, he turned up at the office and it was locked with a sign on the door saying that the Redheaded League is dissolved, meaning it's been uh, stopped. Wilson was confused. He went downstairs to see the owner of the building. The owner of the building said he'd never heard of Duncan Ross he'd, um, and um, he'd never heard of the Red-Headed League. He said that the man's name was... What was the man's name again? Um, let me just check. William Mor He said that the man's name was William Morris, that he was actually a solicitor using the room as a temporary office until his new office is ready. He gave Jabez Wilson the address of the new office. Wilson went to investigate. It turned out to be a, a, a place that manufactured artificial kneecaps. A kneecap, your kneecap is the is a part of your body. It's the cap that go that uh, is on the front of your knee, the round, smooth part on the front of your knee. So very strange, huh? This place just makes artificial kneecaps. What's going on? Um. And so at that point, he was so confused and he, he really wanted to work out what was going on. So that's when he went to see Sherlock Holmes to get some answers. Holmes points out that Wilson hasn't really lost anything. Uh, he, in fact, he's made money. You know, he got paid for eight weeks. And as well as that, he learnt a lot of stuff from the encyclopedia. Uh, but um, nevertheless, Wilson is very curious and he wants to know what's going on. OK, and what's, uh, Holmes says, OK, we'll, we'll let you know. So let's carry on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And first, one or two questions, Mr. Wilson. This is Holmes speaking. This assistant of yours who first called your attention to the advertisement, how long had he been with you? 
about a month at that point. How did he come? In answer to an advertisement. Was he the only applicant? No, I had a dozen. Why did you pick him? Because he was handy and would come cheap. At half wages, in fact. Yes. What is he like, this Vincent Spaulding? Small, stout built, very quick in his ways. No hair on his face, though he's not short of 30. Has a white splash of acid upon his forehead. Holmes sat up in his chair in considerable excitement. I thought as much, said he. Have you observed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Yes, sir. He told me that a gypsy had done it for him when he was a lad. Hmm, said Holmes, sinking back in deep thought. Hmm. Is he still with you? Oh, yes, sir. I've only just left him. And has your business been attended to in your absence? Nothing to complain of, sir. There's never very much to do of a morning. That will do, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion upon the subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to a conclusion. OK, so Holmes sort of questions him about the assistant. He seems to think that the assistant is a bit suspicious. And uh, somehow he already had worked certain things out about him. And when uh, Wilson explained to Holmes and described the assistant, Holmes was very excited to learn certain things. The fact that he had a white mark on his head, that his ears may have been pierced when he was young. So it seems that Holmes maybe knows this person. And then he tells them, tells Wilson that in a couple of days he should be able to give him some answers. Okay, so let's carry on the story. What do you think is happening, listeners? Any idea? Why, why was Wilson given this odd job to copy out the encyclopedia every day in the morning? Why is, um, why is Holmes curious about the assistant? What is going on? Well, let's find out as we continue the story. Well, Watson, said Holmes when our visitor had left us, what do you make of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered frankly. It is a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It is your commonplace featureless crimes which are really puzzling, just as a commonplace face is the most difficult to identify, but I must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do then? I asked. To smoke, he answered. It is quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for fifty minutes. He curled himself up in his chair, with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose, and there he sat, with his eyes closed, and his black clay pipe thrusting out like the bill of some strange bird. I had come to the conclusion that he had dropped asleep, and indeed was nodding myself, when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with the gesture of a man who has made up his mind and put his pipe down upon the mantelpiece. Sarasate plays at the St. James's Hall this afternoon, he remarked. What do you think, Watson? Could your patience spare you for a few hours? I have nothing to do today. My practice is never very absorbing. Then put on your hat and come. I'm going through the city first, and we can have some lunch on the way. 
I observe that there is a good deal of German music on the programme, which is rather more to my taste than Italian or French. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Come along! Okay, so Holmes does his typical thing of sort of going into a, a kind of trance where he sits and smokes his pipe in order to think about the situation. Watson starts nodding off to sleep. Suddenly Holmes uh, gets up and suggests that they go into the city to see a, a music concert, Sarasate. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly. Yeah, I just checked and I got that wrong. It should be pronounced Sarasate or Sarasate. Sarasate. Okay. Anyway, so sorry, Spanish speakers. I got that one wrong. And everyone else as well. Most of you were like, huh? that's fine. Anyway, Sarasate or Sarasate, not Sarasate. Okay. He, is a, he was a Spanish violinist, a virtuoso Spanish violinist. And so uh, Holmes suggests that they, they go and see the concert because... Holmes likes to use music as a form of introspection to help him think about cases. So they're going to go and see a concert so that um, Holmes can get inspiration and also to visit the city. So off they go. We travelled by the underground as far as Aldersgate and a short walk took us to Saxe-Coburg Square, the scene of the singular story which we had listened to in the morning. So this is where uh, Wilson has his, uh, his shop. It was a pokey, little, shabby, genteel place where four lines of dingy, two-storied brick houses looked out into a rail looked out into a small railed-in enclosure where a lawn of weedy grass and a few clumps of faded laurel bushes made a hard fight against a smoke-laden and uncongenial atmosphere. Three gilt balls and a brown board with Jabez Wilson in white letters upon a corner house announced the place where our red-headed client carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it with his head on one side and looked it all over with his eyes shining brightly between puckered lid lids. Hmm. Then he walked slowly up the street and then down again to the corner, still looking keenly at the houses. Finally, he returned to the pawnbroker's and, having thumped vigorously upon the pavement with his stick two or three times, <laughs> he went up to the door and knocked it was instantly opened by a bright-looking, clean-shaven young fellow who asked him to step in. "'Thank you,' said Holmes. "'I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand.' Uh, third right, fourth left,' answered the assistant promptly, closing the door. "'Smart fellow, that,' observed Holmes as we walked away. "'He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London.' And for daring, I am not sure that he has not a claim to be third. I have known something of him before. Evidently, said I. Mr. Wilson's, Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the red-headed league. I am sure that you inquired your way merely in order that you might see him. Not him. Well, what then? The knees of his trousers. And, and what did you see? What I expected to see. Why did you beat the pavement? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. 
We are spies in an enemy's country. We know something of Saxe-Coburg Square. Let us now explore the parts which lie behind it. The road in which we found ourselves as we turned round the corner from the retired Saxe-Coburg Square presented as great a contrast to it as the front of a picture does to the back. It was one of the main arteries which conveyed the traffic of the city to the north and west. The roadway was blocked with the immense stream of commerce flowing in a double tide inward and outward, while the footpaths were black with the hurrying swarm of pedestrians. It was difficult to realise, as we looked at the line of fine shops and stately business premises, that they really abutted on the other side upon the faded and stagnant square which we had just quitted. Let me see, said Holmes, standing at the corner, glancing along the line. I should just like to remember the order of the houses here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. There is Mortimer's, the tobacconist, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the city and suburban bank, the vegetarian restaurant, and McFarlane's carriage-building depot. That carries us right on to the other block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work. So it's time we had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee, and then off to violin land, where all is sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. Okay, let's stop and explain this bit. So Holmes and, and Wilson, uh, Holmes and Watson uh, go into London to investigate. The first place they go to is Saxe-Coburg Square, which is where Jabez Wilson has his, his pawnbroker's shop. And so they look at the square. It's a kind of, you know, um, not particularly pretty or special, but fairly quiet uh, little square where the, the pawnbroker's shop can be found. And... Uh, Holmes looks around, and one of the things he does is he, 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 he sort of hammers on the floor with a stick for some reason, and then he knocks on the door of the pawnbroker's shop. The door opens, and it's Vincent Spaulding, the assistant. But Holmes pretends that he's just asking for directions. He says, I'd, uh, what's the quickest way to get to the Strand from here? And Spaulding quickly gives him his directions and closes the door. And Watson says, oh, I'm... I'm I, I know what you were doing, mate. You just wanted to have a look at him, didn't you? And Holmes says, well, actually, I wanted to look at his knees. And uh, and Watson says, well, and what did you see? And Holmes says, exactly what I expected to see. Okay, mysterious. And then uh, they go around the other side of the building, and it's totally different, not quite. It's very busy, lots of, lots of uh, traffic, basically. Um, and uh, Holmes identifies the different shops or different buildings, including um, a restaurant, a bank, um, and a couple of other things. Okay. At that point, Holmes says, okay, I think I've got the information I need. Let's go and have lunch and then go to the violin concert. Okay, let's continue. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary merit. 
All the afternoon he sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes, the sleuth-hound, Holmes the relentless, keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent, as it was possible to conceive. In his singular character, the dual nature alternately asserted itself, and his extreme exactness and astuteness represented, as I have often thought, the reaction against the poetic and contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. The swing of his nature took him from extreme languor to devouring energy, and as I knew well, he was never so truly formidable as when, for days on end, he had been lounging in his armchair amid his improvisations and his black-letter editions. Then it was that the lust of the chase would suddenly come upon him, and that his brilliant reasoning power would rise to the level of intuition, until those who were unacquainted with his methods would look askance at him, as on a man whose knowledge was not that of mere mortals. When I saw him that afternoon so enwrapped in the music at St. James's Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those whom he had set himself to hunt down. This is a really good little passage, because this, this is uh, Watson describing Holmes at the um, music concert. First of all, Holmes is lost in the music and he's sort of carried away by the music. And Watson notes that this is a very different Holmes to the ones that he to the one that he observes uh, in investigations, the sort of very focused, serious version of Holmes. And then um, Watson goes on to describe how there are kind of that that Sherlock Holmes's nature, his personality swings between two um, sort of poles as it were, right? In fact, this is a very curious thing about Sherlock Holmes, and maybe with a modern analysis, uh, we might say that he has sort of bipolar disorder or something like that, because for some periods he's very, he seems to be very, very lazy, he spends his time sitting down, uh, reading, or even doing nothing, maybe feeling depressed, and this has been written about a lot in Sherlock Holmes stories, this kind of double character that Holmes has, that sometimes he's very depressed and sort of immobile and nothing really happens. He's bored. And also we've read in other stories that he, in these moments, he takes drugs. He uses cocaine to relieve the boredom and everyone worries about him. And then when he's inspired by a case, he snaps into action. And that's when all his amazing skills of observation um, really become fine-tuned to the level of intuition so that he's able to work things out so fast that other people think that he is um, superhuman or something like that. Um, so that that's a little descriptive passage there. Um, okay, let's carry on. We're getting close to the conclusion of the story here. Here we go. You want to go home, no doubt, Doctor, he remarked as we emerged from the concert. Yes, it, it would be as well. And I have some business to do, which will take some hours. This business at Coburg Square is serious. Why serious? A considerable crime is in contemplation. 
I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it, but today being Saturday rather complicates matters. I shall want your help tonight. At what time? Ten will be early enough. I shall be at Baker Street at ten. Very well. And I say, Doctor, there may be some little danger, so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. He waved his hand, turned on his heel, and disappeared in an instant among the crowd. Okay, so basically here, um, Holmes is saying, this is serious, uh, we need to act quite quickly, uh, you can go home now, uh, I'm going to go and do a bit more investigating, uh, but I'll see you at 10, right, come and meet me at 10 o'clock tonight uh, at Baker Street, and uh, make sure you bring your gun. And it's, I love these moments in Sherlock Holmes stories, there's always a moment where... Um, <laughs> Holmes or Watson opens a drawer and takes out a revolver and slips it into their pocket and it shows that you know things are about to get serious so Holmes says to Will to, to Watson come to uh, Baker Street at 10 o'clock and bring your gun and so Holmes goes off to do some more uh, investigating and Watson goes home let's continue I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbours, but I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here I had heard what he had heard, I had seen what he had seen, and yet from his words it was evident that he saw clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen, while to me the whole business was still confused and grotesque. As I drove to my house in Kensington, I thought over it all, from the extraordinary story of the red-headed copier of the encyclopaedia down to the visit to Saxe-Coburg Square and the ominous words with which he had parted from me. What was this nocturnal expedition, and why should I go armed? Where were we going, and what were we to do? I had the hint from Holmes that this smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. I tried to puzzle it out, but I gave up in despair and set the matter aside until night should bring an explanation. It was a quarter past nine when I started from home and made my way across the park, and so through Oxford Street to Baker Street. Two hansoms, that's taxis, were standing at the door, and as I entered the passage, I heard the sound of voices from above. On entering his room, I found Holmes in animated conversation with two men, one of whom I recognised as Peter Jones, the official police agent, while the other was a long, thin, sad-faced man with a very shiny hat and oppressively respectable frock coat. Ha! Our party is complete! said Holmes, buttoning up his pea jacket and taking his heavy hunting crop from the rack. A hunting crop is a kind of a, a leather-bound rod or stick that would be used to hit, uh, to hit, beat a horse to make it run faster. It's used during hunting. Uh, it's, it's used for hunting when riding a horse during a hunt when you have to, you know, make the horse ride fast. So it's like a long, thick, leather, solid stick. Okay. So, our party is complete, said Holmes, buttoning up his pea jacket and taking his heavy hunting crop from the rack. Watson, I think you know Mr Jones of Scotland Yard. Let me introduce you to Mr Merriweather, who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure. 
We're hunting in couples again, Doctor, you see, said Jones in his consequential way. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. All he wants is an old dog to help him to do the running down. I, I hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase, observed Mr. Merriweather gloomily. You may place considerable confidence in Mr. Holmes, sir, said the police agent loftily. He has his own little methods, which are, if he won't mind my saying so, just a little too theoretical and fantastic, but he has the makings of a detective in him. It is not too much to say that once or twice, as in that business of the Sholto murder and the Agra treasure, that he has been more nearly correct than the official force. Oh, if you say so, Mr. Jones, it is all right, said the stranger with deference. Still, I confess that I miss my rubber. It is the first Saturday night for seven and twenty years that I have not had my rubber. I think you will find, said Sherlock Holmes, that you will play for a higher stake tonight than you have ever done yet, and that the play will be more exciting for you, Mr. Merriweather, the stake will be some £30,000, and for you, Jones, it will be the man upon whom you wish to lay your hands. John Clay, the murderer, thief, smasher and forger. He's a young man, Mr. Merriweather, but he's at the head of his profession, and I would rather have my bracelets on him than on any criminal in London. He's a remarkable man, this young John Clay. His grandfather was a royal duke and he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. His brain is as cunning as his fingers, and though we meet signs of him at every turn, we never know where to find the man himself. He'll crack a crib in Scotland one week and be raising money to build an orphanage in Cornwall the next. I've been on his track for years and have never set eyes on him yet, said Peter Jones, the police officer. I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. This is Holmes. I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. I've had one or two little turns also with Mr. John Clay, and I agree with you that he is at the head of his profession. It is past ten, however, and quite time that we started. If you two will take the first hansom, Watson and I will follow in the second. OK, so Watson has gone to Baker Street to meet Holmes. He goes into... Um, Holmes's uh, uh, apartment and uh, notices that um, he is joined by two other men. So there's Peter Jones, the police officer, and it seems that Peter Jones has been searching for Vincent Spaulding, who in fact is called John Clay. He's been searching for him for a long time, and he is a very clever um, criminal who's wanted, a murderer, a thief, and other, other things. We don't know who the other man is at this moment, but he's been brought along as well. And the man seems to be a little bit sceptical about the whole thing. He says, I hope this isn't going to be a wild goose chase. A wild goose chase is a sort of complicated case where you go from one thing to the other and then ultimately you get nothing at the end of it. A wild goose chase, a complicated um, a complicated uh, investigation which results in nothing. So he's saying, I hope this isn't going to be a wild goose chase because I want to have my rubber tonight. I'm not sure what that means to have your rubber, but I, I kind of worked out that it means that he he's a gambler. He likes to play card games, I think. He likes to gamble 
uh, with money in, in card games. And so he's a bit annoyed because he's going to miss his card game. But Holmes says, well, you stand to, to um, uh, win or, you, you know, you're tonight, what's going to happen tonight is going to be a lot more exciting and um, serious than your card game. And you could lose £30,000 tonight. So maybe this tall man is somehow involved in 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 the crime. If, if he loses £30,000, maybe this John Clay, this Vincent Spaulding, maybe he's trying to steal money from this man. We'll, we'll see. Okay, so off they go into uh, horse-drawn taxis to go to Saxe-Coburg Square. Uh, the police officer and the, the other man are in the first one. Holmes and Watson are in the second uh, taxi. And this is what Watson says. This is what he writes about. Sherlock Holmes was not very communicative during the long drive and lay back in the cab humming the tunes which he had heard in the afternoon. We rattled through the endless labyrinth of gas-lit streets until we emerged into Farringdon Street. We are close there now, my friend remarked. This fellow, Merriweather, is a bank director and personally interested in the matter. I thought it was as well to have Jones with us also. He's not a bad fellow, though an absolute imbecile in his profession. He has one positive virtue. He is as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws upon anyone. Here we are, and they're waiting for us. We had reached the same crowded thoroughfare in which we had found ourselves in the morning. Our cabs were dismissed, and following the guidance of Mr Merriweather, we passed down a narrow passage and through a side door, which he opened for us. Within, there was a small corridor, which ended in a very massive iron gate. This also was opened, and led down a flight of winding stone steps, which terminated at another formidable gate. Mr. Merriweather stopped to light a lantern and then conducted us down a dark, earth-smelling passage and so, after opening a third door, into a huge vault or cellar which was piled all around with crates and massive boxes. "'You are not very vulnerable from above,' Holmes remarked as he held up the lantern and gazed about him. "'Nor from below,' said Mr. Merriweather, sticking his stick upon the flags, the flagstones, which lined the floor. Why, dear me, it sounds quite hollow, he remarked, looking up in surprise. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, said Holmes severely. You have already imperiled the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you would have the goodness to sit down on one of those boxes and not to interfere? The solemn Mr. Merriweather perched himself on a crate with a very injured expression on his face, while Holmes fell upon his knees upon the floor and with the lantern and a magnifying glass began to examine minutely the cracks between the stones. A few seconds sufficed to satisfy him, for he sprang to his feet again and put his glass in his pocket. We have at least an hour before us, he remarked. For they can hardly take any steps until the good pawnbroker is safely in bed. Then they will not lose a minute, 
for the sooner they do their work, the longer time they will have for their escape. We are at present, Doctor, as no doubt you have divined, in the cellar of the city branch of one of the principal London banks. Mr Merriweather is the chairman of directors, and he will explain to you that there are reasons why the more daring criminals of London should take considerable interest in this cellar at present. It is our French gold, whispered the director. We've had several warnings that an attempt might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes. We had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources and borrowed for that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. It has become known that we have never had occasion to unpack the money and that it is still lying in our cellar. The crate upon which I sit contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. Our reserve of bullion is much larger at present than is usually kept in a single branch office, and the directors have had misgivings upon the subject. Which were very well justified, observed Holmes. And now it is time that we arranged our little plans. I expect that within an hour matters will come to a head. In the meantime, Mr Merriweather, we must put the screen over that dark lantern. And sit in the dark... I'm afraid so. Okay, so let me back up what's happened. So they've arrived at Saxe-Coburg Square, which is where the pawnbroker has his shop. And you, you'll remember from earlier on, when Holmes and Watson investigated on the other side of the shop in the street, there were a few other shops and buildings, including a bank. So it turns out that Mr. Merriweather, the tall man, is uh, one of the directors of the bank. And so he leads Watson, Holmes and Jones, the police officer, through some passages, down lots of stairs, through lots of gates and finally into a dark underground cellar, which is where they are. And Merriweather, uh, Holmes says, oh, you know, you're very well protected from above. And Merriweather says, and from below. And he hits the stone floor of the cellar with his stick. And then he remarks, it sounds hollow. So, doom, doom. It sounds like it's hollow under the stones. What's, um, Holmes then gets very annoyed and says, sit down. Don't make so much noise. And then Holmes explains that they're in the cellar of the bank. And Merriweather explains that the reason this is all happening is because in the cellar at that moment, they have £30,000 worth of French gold. French gold bullion, bars of gold. Uh, and they're, they're temporarily being kept in the cellar. And, um, and because all this money is in there, uh, this, th th there's a danger, there's a threat that someone might try to steal it. And that's probably what's going on, right? Looks like Vincent Spaulding, who's actually called John Clay, is, has been planning to steal the money. It's a bank robbery. And so there they are in the cellar, surrounded by the gold, which is going to be stolen. And Holmes says, OK, it's time to, to cover the lantern. So they've got like a, a gas lantern, probably, which is lighting up the room. And it's time to cover it up. Um, and then they, they're going to wait in the dark. Let me continue. I had 
brought a pack of cards in my pocket, and I thought that, as we were a party carré, you might have your rubber after all. But I see that the enemy's preparations have gone so far that we cannot risk the presence of a light. And, first of all, we must choose our positions. These are daring men, and though we shall take them at a disadvantage, they may do us some harm unless we are careful. I shall stand behind this crate, and you conceal yourselves behind those. Then, when I flash a light upon them, close in swiftly. If they fire, Watson, have no compunction about shooting them down. I placed my revolver, cocked, upon the top of the wooden case behind which I crouched. Holmes shot the slide across the front of his lantern and left us in pitch darkness. Such an absolute darkness as I have never before experienced. The smell of hot metal remained to assure us that the light was still there, ready to flash out at a moment's notice. To me, with my nerves worked up to a pitch of expectancy, there was something depressing and subduing in the sudden gloom and in the cold, dank air of the vault. "'They have but one retreat,' whispered Holmes. "'That is back through the house into Saxe-Coburg Square. I hope that you have done what I asked you, Jones.' I have, I have an inspector and two officers waiting at the front door. Then we have stopped all the holes, and now we must be silent and wait. So, yeah, basically, there they are, waiting in the darkness. Um, Jones, the policeman, has uh, put two officers on the door at the other end. So if they try, if the criminals try to escape on the other side, they'll be stopped by the police there. So they've, they've stopped all the holes. The trap has been set. And now they just have to be quiet and wait. Let's continue. What a time it seemed. From comparing notes afterwards, it was but an hour and a quarter. Yet it appeared to me that the night must have almost gone and the dawn be breaking above us. My limbs were weary and stiff, for I feared to change my position yet my nerves were worked up to the highest pitch of tension, and my hearing was so acute that I could not only hear the gentle breathing of my companions, but I could distinguish the deeper, heavier in-breath of the bulky Jones from the thin, sighing note of the bank director. From my position, I could look over the case in the direction of the floor. Suddenly, my eyes caught the glint of a light, at first it was but a lurid spark upon the stone pavement. Then it lengthened out until it became a yellow line. And then, without any warning or sound, a gash seemed to open, and a hand appeared, a white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the centre of the little area of light. For a minute or more the hand, with its writhing fingers, protruded out of the floor. Then it was withdrawn as suddenly as it appeared and all was dark again, save the single lurid spark which marked a chink between the stones. Its disappearance, however, was but momentary. With a rending, tearing sound, one of the broad white stones turned over upon its side and left a square, gaping hole through which streamed the light of a lantern. Over the edge there peeped a clean-cut, boyish face which looked keenly about it, and then, 
with a hand on either side of the aperture, drew itself shoulder high and waist high until one knee rested upon the edge. In another instant, he stood at the side of the hole and was hauling after him a companion, lithe and small like himself, with a pale face and a shock of very red hair. "'It's all clear,' he whispered. "'Have you got the chisel and the bags?' "'Great Scott! Jump, Archie, jump, and I'll swing for it!' Sherlock Holmes had sprung out and seized the intruder by the collar. The other dived down the hole, and I heard the sound of rending cloth as Jones clutched at his skirts. The light flashed upon the barrel of a, of a revolver, but Holmes's hunting crop came down on the man's wrist and the pistol clinked upon the stone floor. "'It's no use, John Clay,' said Holmes blandly. "'You have no chance at all.' "'So I see,' the other answered with the utmost coolness. "'I fancy that my pal is all right, though. I see you've got his coattails.' "'There are three men waiting for him at the door,' said Holmes. "'Oh, indeed! You seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you.' "'And I you,' Holmes answered. "'Your red-headed idea was very new and effective.' "'You'll see your pal again presently,' said Jones. "'He's quicker at climbing down holes than I am. Just hold out while I fix the derbies.' "'I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands.' remarked our prisoner as the handcuffs clattered upon his wrists. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Have the goodness also, when you address me, always to say sir and please. All right, said Jones with a stare and a snigger. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs where we can get a cab to carry your highness to the police station. That is better, said John Clay serenely. He made a sweeping bow to the three of us and walked quietly off in the custody of the detective. Right, let me just back up and explain that bit again. So basically they've been waiting and waiting and waiting in the dark, in the cellar, um, getting tired. Uh, Watson noticed that he was suddenly able to hear very clearly in the darkness. Then he noticed um, a light coming from the floor. It started as a little spark of light. It became a line as, a, as one of the stone, um, um, as one of the paving stones opened and light came out. Right. First it was a hand that felt around and then the stone uh, fell onto its side and uh, John Clay, Vincent Spaulding, pulled himself out of the hole and then pulled up the, the, the guy who must have been the director. Uh, what was his name again? I can't remember his name now. But the, the, the other ginger-haired man who offered the job to Jabez Wilson. So they're working together, the assistant and the red-headed league... Uh, director, they're working together. So um, he arrived in the room as well. And then suddenly um, the policeman and Holmes and Watson jumped in. Um, I can't remember the other guy's name. What's his name? Anyway, let's say that the, the redheaded man jumped down the hole, uh, 
Jones managed to grab his coat tails. That's the sort of back end of his coat, which ripped off. Um, what uh, Holmes grabbed uh, John Clay by the collar. Uh, John Clay pulled up his pistol, but Holmes whacked his hand, his wrist, with uh, his hunting crop, and the gun fell on the floor. Um, and they exchanged a few words. So uh, John Clay sort of arrogantly said, "Oh, you're, my friend's going to escape." And uh, but of course, you know, the police officers were, were going to catch him, and so they caught him. But his response was to be was to be, "Don't touch me with your filthy hands." And you, I am a, I'm royal, don't you know? You have to call me sir and be respectful to me. Mm. But they got him. They got him. So. Let's continue. Really, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Merriweather, as we followed them from the cellar, I do not know how the bank can thank you or repay you. There is no doubt that you have detected and defeated in the most complete manner one of the most determined attempts at bank robbery that have ever come within my experience. I have had one or two little scores of my own to settle with Mr. John Clay, said Holmes. I have been at some small expense over this matter, which I'll ex I shall expect the bank to refund. But beyond that, I am amply repaid by having had an experience which is in many ways unique, and by hearing the very remarkable narrative of the Red-Headed League. So, Holmes, Mr. Merriweather, the bank director, is like amazed and delighted and is saying, how can we repay you? And Holmes says, you can just pay me back my expenses. Uh, other than that, I'm just happy to have been part of the experience and to, to have heard the story. And then the final part of the story goes like this. You see, Watson, he explained in the early hours of the morning, as we sat over a glass of whiskey and soda in Baker Street, it was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the League and the copying of the encyclopaedia must be to get this not over-bright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but really it would be difficult to suggest a better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the colour of his accomplice's hair. The four pounds a week was a lure which must draw him. And what was it to them who were playing for thousands? They put in the advertisement, one rogue has the temporary office, the other rogue incites the man to apply for it. And together they managed to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time that I heard of the assistant having come for half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. But how could you guess what the motive was? Had there been a woman in the house, I should have suspected a mere vulgar intrigue. That, however, was out of the question. The man's business was a small one, and there was nothing in this house which could account for such elaborate preparations and such an expenditure as they were at. It must then be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. The cellar! There was the end of this tangled clue. Then I made inquiries as to this mysterious assistant, 
and found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in the cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. So far I had got when we went to visit the scene of action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with my stick. I was ascertaining whether the cellar stretched out in front or behind. It was not in front. Then I rang the bell, and, as I hoped, the assistant answered it. We have had some skirmishes, but we had never set eyes upon each other before. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself as... You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner, saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises, and felt that I had solved my problem. When you drove home after the concert, I called upon Scotland Yard and upon the chairman of the bank directors, with the result that you have seen. And how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight? I asked. Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words, that they had completed their tunnel. But it was essential that they should use it soon, as it might be discovered, or the bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better than any other day, as it would give them two days for their escape. For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. He reasoned it out beautifully, I exclaimed in unfeigned admiration. It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me from ennui, he answered, yawning. Uh, alas, I already feel it closing in upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape the common places of existence. These little problems help me to do so. And you are the benefactor of the race, said I. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps after all, it is of some little use, he remarked. L'homme, c'est rien. L'oeuvre, c'est tout, as Gustave Flaubert wrote to George Sand. And that's the end of the story. Let me just recap that last part. So this is the bit at the end where Holmes and Watson are sitting in Baker Street having a, a whiskey and soda in the early hours of the morning, sort of talking through what had happened. Um, so the business of the Red-Headed League. So this was obviously just a, a setup, um, and it was a way to get uh, Jabez Wilson out of his offices and out of his home into that office from 10 until, and 10 until 2 every day. And why the red-headed thing? Well, it's because um, John Clay's accomplice, the short man with the red hair who interviewed Wilson for the job, I can't remember his name, the accomplice, the red-headed accomplice, he had red hair. And so John Clay probably thought, ah, he's got red hair and the guy who lives next to the bank has got red hair. Maybe we can come up with some story that connects the two of them that could be convincing. And so he came up with the idea of the Red-Headed League, which was complete fiction. 
the whole thing, the whole thing, the the the, the American guy with the millions of pounds that he was going to spend helping redheaded people in London, all complete fiction, all designed just to get Wilson out of the house every day, so that um, so that he and his accomplice could dig in the basement, dig a tunnel that would lead them to the cellar of the bank because they knew that the money would be there. That's it. Um, all right, that's basically it. Quite good, uh, quite a good uh, a bank robbery kind of story. And that last bit, um, Holmes is saying, it saved me from ennui, it saved me from sort of depression. So uh, Watson is amazed. This is incredible, amazing what you did. And Holmes basically says, yeah, it's, you know, it's just something I did to stop me getting bored and depressed. Um, and then he says, unfortunately, I can already feeling it. I can already feel it coming back. So when he's not working on a case, Holmes is just depressed. He says, he said, my life is spent in one long effort to escape the commonplaces of existence. These little problems help me to do so. So all Holmes wants to do is avoid boredom and depression. And he does that by working on these cases. His brilliant mind needs to have something to work on. Otherwise, he gets depressed. And uh, Watson said, you are a benefactor of the race. A benefactor is someone who helps and supports. So he's basically uh, a benefit to uh, the human race. And um, Holmes is interesting because he doesn't really have a big ego. He doesn't do it for the likes. <laughs> he doesn't do it for his ego. He just does it because he desperately needs something to, to occupy his brilliant mind. And he says, well, you know, if, if I could be useful, then that's good. And then he said, l'homme c'est rien. So apologies for my French pronunciation, but l'homme c'est rien. The man is nothing. L'oeuvre c'est tout. The work is all. The man is nothing. The work is everything. So basically, Holmes... Um, you know, for him, he, he lives to work, let's say. Yeah. Okay, there you go. What did you think of the story? It ended up being pretty long, didn't it? It's nearly two hours. Ah, that's all right. But what did you think of the story? Did you like it? Did you manage to follow it? I wonder how many of you are still listening to this. I expect that I've got a few, uh, a few skeletons, but maybe not. Um, let me know what you thought of this. Did you understand the story? What did, did you notice the old-fashioned language? It was very complex, isn't it? It's very complex, florid kind of language, quite different to the language we use today, and certainly not plain English. So this will definitely have been a challenge for you. But I don't know, maybe. It depends on your level of English, of course. But I hope you enjoyed the language, even if it wasn't all clear to you. And I hope that my little summaries helped you. But hopefully you found it to be an enjoyable experience to be able to follow a Sherlock Holmes story written in this kind of wonderful old-fashioned English. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave your comments in the comments section. Thank you for listening. I will speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.
Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders, about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.